the first year, we didn't generate any money. And really founders, you're not going to make money for a while. I want anybody who's starting a company to really not think about profit. You're not seeing profitability until years into the company. That first year was us really understanding our market. It was understanding the pain points of our potential customers. And it was really honing in and identifying the solution that we wanted to provide to these communities. Then 2020, a lot of things started to happen with the backdrop of our country, which ultimately ended up serving our company in a beneficial way. Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay Pele, and welcome to episode 118 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for their business success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. In today's episode, we meet Kimberly Wilson, the founder and CEO of Hude, which is a platform that links Black and Latinx patients to culturally competent doctors of color. After personally receiving improper care for a diagnosis from four white male doctors who dismissed her pain and recommended a hysterectomy, Kimberly had to travel over 200 miles to find a doctor who understood the cultural context of her medical needs. During our conversation, Kimberly shares the challenges she's faced being a Black woman in technology. She's also shared how she built her platform, how she landed national partnerships with Vaseline, and so much more. So before we hear the rest of Kimberly's story, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes, or really anywhere else you listen to podcasts. This will help to spread the word about our show so amazing stories like Kimberly's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own off-script journeys. The She's Off-Script podcast also has a membership community to help you launch and grow your business with resources and coaching. Join our Boss Off-Script community today by going to sewaadavepilly.com forward slash community. With that, let's go off script with Kimberly Wilson, the founder and CEO of Hume. Kimberly Wilson, welcome to She's Off Script. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So for any of our listeners who haven't heard of you, could you share who you are and what you do? So my name is Kimberly Wilson, and I'm the founder and CEO of Hude. And Hude is a healthcare engagement solution tailored to address the needs of Black and Latinx populations. I know you've had a varied career, both in higher education and in journalism. So could you share what your career path has been like, at least before launching Hude? Absolutely. So I have spent over a decade working at the intersection of social justice, education, and media, as you mentioned. So my career has been spent in leadership roles at the GRIO, um, you know, the root.com, working at Black Enterprise, um, and more recently at Essence Magazine. But then my higher education career, so I served as an adjunct professor. I worked at NYU. I taught at Howard University. And my courses were centered around social media and digital strategy, public relations, and then strategic communication. So um, I have a background in communications just, you know, by way of my undergraduate degree. I later went on to pursue a law degree. And while my path didn't take me, you know, down that background, I've still been able to use it in the work that I've been able to do. Why law? You know, at the time, I thought that I wanted to be 
you know, a big shot entertainment lawyer. I had worked, you know, in entertainment for a number of years. I had interned when I was in college in entertainment and I wanted my path to kind of take me that way. Um, I really enjoyed learning about the law. I loved law school. I graduated from Howard University School of Law, but you know, that wasn't my true passion. And honestly, I really loved learning about intellectual property and internet law and just everything that was taking place on the internet during that time. Because when I was in law school, there was no precedent for anything that was happening on the internet. Everything mm -hmm. was so new, um, which that love of digital, that love of, you know, IP, really helped shape my career because I went then using my marketing communications background and then this newfound love of the internet, I actually went into digital strategy. Um, and I went to an agency and I, I, I did social media and digital strategy. And that kind of shaped my career path and my career direction later going into digital strategy, content strategy, and editorial. And I can definitely see that in the way you've been able to get the word out about Hued. And I, I would love to dive into that. But given that you didn't come from a tech or a medical background, what were your initial steps with getting Hued up and running? And I think before that, I've heard this, but our listeners may not have heard the backstory to why you launched Hued to begin with. So maybe let's start there. Absolutely. So no healthcare background whatsoever, no tech back background, as you mentioned. Um, so just starting there, everything was a challenge. As we know, two industries, specifically from a leadership standpoint, where we often, you know, don't see women of color kind of at the helm, as we know, eh, the, the statistics specifically within tech are jarring when it comes to the amount of funding that Black women receive and just the amount of you know tech founders who are venture-backed just in general. Mm -hmm. When we know that you know Black women are the highest rates of entrepreneurs, unfortunately, as it pertains to tech, we're just not getting funded. Um, but my path kind of took me in a really interesting way because I started HUD based off of a personal experience. I was diagnosed with uterine fibroids in 2017, and they are common for many women. So it's funny because I had never even heard about uterine fibroids until I was diagnosed and then everybody told me, oh, well, everybody has it, you know, um, and it is extremely common. But for black women specifically, up to 90 percent will develop them by the time they turn 50. So mm. we all have them or get them in some capacity. And many will never experience any issues. But, you know, if, if you're like me, I had over 30 of them and they began to impact my other organs in, in my day to day life. And I lived in New York City at the time and over a period of six months. And I've, I've told this story quite often. I visited four different white male providers in New York City and they either dismissed my pain altogether. Um, and there were some days I couldn't get out of bed. My abdominal pain was that severe mm. that I would, you know, wake up crying and, you know, curled up on my bed and I would have to go to the emergency room because of my pain. And then the other stated that, you know, the only way to absolve myself of any pain or issues that I was going through was to have a hysterectomy. And In I was- In your thirties. What? Yeah, I, I was exactly 30 at the time. So, you know, finding out that personal news was very traumatic for me at that 
stage of where I was in life and how, you know, black women or communities of color just in general is how we find providers, healthcare providers, it's through our own direct network. So, you know, we might text a group of friends or we might post something on Facebook or maybe a family member is referring physicians to us. Um, and that's how we, ha you know, are able to recognize our care team. And the closest recommendation that I was able to receive was in Baltimore, Maryland. So I lived in New York and the only black OBGYN I was able to find within my own reach was over 200 miles away from home. And the experience was a complete 180. You know, she was a black woman who in addition to the bedside manner just being completely different and her just sitting and seeking to understand what I was going through, she told me that there were other options for me. You, you know, I, I think in terms of just the medical system in general, a hysterectomy was what they used to tell our parents' generation um, years and years ago, but there's so much new technology now that she said, you know, there you have this and this is another option and this is another option so you know a year later i had an abdominal myomectomy with the same physician so you know i traveled packed my bags um and i had this i had a a very invasive surgery but ultimately my uterus is still intact and it wasn't until finding that physician that I really received the culturally competent care that i needed and deserved and it was following this experience that I talked to people. I had conversations with friends and family members and colleagues. I posted about the experience on social media and it was just a resounding, you know, feedback that so many people go through the same thing every day um, in terms of the relationship and the experiences that they have with healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was recognizing that this is a larger issue and we need to do something about this issue because it, it's, you know, it's no coincidence that we, African, and when I say we, I refer to um, the African-American demographic or just even the Latinx community. We have the highest rates of maternal mortality, heart disease, diabetes, colorectal cancer, asthma, mm. um, and, and so on and so forth. And that is not just economic challenges that we are being faced with. A lot of that has to do with the, the psychological barriers that exist for communities of color, which has stemmed from the history of the healthcare system. So, you know, we have fear, we have distrust, um, especially in, you know, when we think about distrust relative to vaccinations that are about to come on the market. And, um, you know, I've been seeing personally on social media, people talking about not wanting to be the first or not mm -hmm. wanting to participate in that. So, you know, we have to, we have, you know, wanting to really get to the root and understanding of behavioral things that were happening within the healthcare system. And, and by no means is huge, the end all be all solution, because there's a lot of work that has to happen, Absolutely. but we wanted to serve as a bridge to starting those conversations and really closing the gap in medical care. And that was a very long winded way of, you know, walking through um, my personal experience. So. No, I, and I think it's important that everyone understands that as a backdrop to the journey that you've then gone on. But it's one thing to see a problem and it's something entirely different 
want to be able to address the problem. So um, back to the question of once you knew that this was a problem that you wanted to tackle, given Mm -hmm. that this is not something you had any background or skill in, how did you approach it? So, you know, and, and, and I know you're really trying to get to the nitty gritty of like what that process looked like. So, and I could dive deeper into that. So a lot of it was research, um, understanding competitors and what the space looked like and, and what I was actually trying to solve. Um, there's so many pieces to healthcare um, and understanding, okay, what was the actual solution that I wanted to do, to accomplish and starting from there. Uh, recognizing industry competitors and then kind of writing out, okay, this is how we're different. This is our value proposition. This is what we're going to accomplish. I then tapped into resources and just industry mentors um, who had been, you know, technology adjacent or had worked in some capacity and started asking questions. And honestly, I really put myself out there at a really early stage. I started going to tech conferences. You know, I had I had launched a company in October of 2018. And that next month I registered, I went to Afrotech in San Francisco. I networked, I met people on the UX side. I met designers um, and I really dived into the content of technology and what it meant to start a company. And then thankfully I have a legal background. So I got to work on, you know, the legal formation of how I was going to structure the company, what bylaws looked like, um, you know, first things first is purchasing the domain, the domains of everything that I wanted the name to look like. Um, there were different names in the earlier stages than Hued and then, you know, really ideating on what that looked like and purchasing basically every domain that is even similar to Hued in name. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, hiring a software developer and and what that process kind of looked like. And we we built something. We built an MVP. It was a really early stage kind of model of what we wanted to build out. And then literally just having conversations. So what we did is we surveyed people because how do you understand what a solution is without really understanding the problem more and understanding, okay, I see this as a benefit, but what do people see as a benefit? Mm. So we started surveying people on the patient side, on the physician side about their pain points and what they would want to see in a technology platform that really um, hit on all of their pain points. So that's how, you know, I did it in the beginning and I read books. I read a lot of books, um, you know, and and thankfully I have a marketing background. So Mm -hmm. that is one of the key drivers in our success is that we started to build community online. We started to build a buzz around it. We started to collect you know, email addresses from people so that, you know, at least follow up with a newsletter and have them participate in our beta so that once we, the MVP went live, we were able to start to collect data. And it wasn't until this year um, where, you know, that first year was such a struggle. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> um, you know, understanding the business model, understanding our value proposition, understanding you know, there is a, a huge difference between a service-based company and building technology mm-hmm. um, and the intellectual property that goes into that. And, you know, you want to file a trademark and you want to just do all these things. So that was what the first year looked like. And it was a, 
a lot of no's. So, so let, I, me, let me pause you there because you have said so much in a very short span of time. And I, I know people are going to be wondering, you mentioned okay. that you tried to get as much into the tech community as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you said, and then I hired a software developer, you said it as though it was so seamless. Was it? Um, it was not. I actually went through a number of software developers until, you know, building out the team that we have right now. You know, I had the first of a, so I had no clue where to even find a software developer. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had one in my network and I reached out to her to say, hey, could you build this for me? She didn't have the time or the capacity. What she said to me is, you know, join, there are meetup groups um, that exist where basically there's We Build Black, which is one organization, and they do programming where you can, you know, I lived in New York at the time, so I I do want to, you know, have that caveat that every city has different kind of structures on Mm. networking groups. But there are networking groups that exist where software developers and We Build Black is one of them host monthly meetups and founders will attend the meetup and pitch to software engineers at the event. So wow. you'll go to the event, you know, each founder will, you know, will present an idea for five minutes and just talk about what they're trying to build. And then afterwards, software developers will come up to you and say, hey, I have an interest in that. And then there's some level of mutual understanding there. Um, I also, the same way that there are in-person meetup groups, there are job boards. So I would search software developers, New York City, and there would be um, meetup groups and things like that online. So everybody who I wasn't able to meet at events, I literally posted building a healthcare technology company that matches patients to black providers mm. uh, and people responded to my listing and then I would meet with people in person um, and, and talk to them. And then I, you know, I found my first developer. It didn't end up working out. Uh, you know, it, it costs a lot of money um, and bet. we were building an MVP and I had used all of my personal savings. I didn't have any funding. I used personal savings. I had had about um, in the early stages, about $10,000 dedicated to building this platform. $10,000 in the grand scheme of things is not a lot of money to build technology. So because I wasn't able to offer it, uh, you know, a lot of money to a software developer, obviously that you know, whittles down the list of people who are interested. I found my first developer. It didn't work out. Then I found a second developer. Um, who his name is actually Devin. He is the founder of We Build Black, that organization that I'm talking about. So he built the first MVP. Um, how I've gotten to my development team now is, you know, I've been in the industry a little bit more. I've, you know, built up my network. And actually it came through a recommendation of a friend who is a founder and our technical advisor was actually, actually a technical advisor for her company. And he's been leading our software development right now. Mm. The other thing I love you said is you started to build and launch before you launched your MVP in that you built a community. Could you speak to the importance of that for the growth you've been able to accomplish since? Absolutely. So before we even had any technology built, we started, you know, I started having conversations and telling people about what you build. And some people do it differently. I will say some people work in stealth mode and they build everything behind the scenes and then they just launch. Um, 
I thought it was more important to, you know, have stakeholders, have people interested and exciting and develop a list, a waiting list of people who could participate in the beta because we wanted to build our network. We wanted to build our listserv. We wanted to build our email newsletter and do it a little bit differently at first. So in that, um, I would go to community events and functions. And again, this is how, um, this is pre-COVID. So yeah. <laughs> um, really, really doing event. So um, for example, I hosted an event in partnership with Trellis Health, which unfortunately is a well, women's fertility clinic that closed earlier this year. But last year we worked with them to offer free fertility testing for black women in New York City. Um, and then we did programming around black women and fertility and women's health. Um, you, in t really to educate mm. these communities about what was existing. So we were trying to go into local communities to one, educate, inform, provide health literacy and offer them free services towards their health and then say, hey, this is what we're building. Be a part of the huge community. Um, so we offered something and then provided value in some type of way. So that's what we were doing. We were going to conferences, we were hosting events, and we really built up a network of people who were then ready because they had already had a part of the huge experience to then say, hey, this is what we're building. You should be the first, you know, the first part of our trial or the first people to um, benefit from this. And that's really how we built up community in the early onset. And I like that approach because there's a little bit less friction when you're trying to get people to buy in because they've already built that relationship with you as opposed to springing it on them and having them be like, eh, I don't know who you are. I'm not sure if I really vibe with you as a company. Right. So when you're building a social enterprise like Hued, you probably need to strike a balance between serving the community, like you said, and then also generating enough revenue to keep doing that work. So given right. that you bootstrapped the company, how have you approached that balance? So I will say the first year we didn't generate any money and, and you know, and really founders, the, you're not going to make money for a while. So I, I, I want anybody who's starting a company to really not think about profit. You're not seeing profitability until, you know, years into the company. But, you know, that first year was us really understanding our market. It was understanding the pain points of our potential customers. And it was really honing in and identifying the solution that we wanted to be able to, to provide to these communities. Mm -hmm. Then what happened is 2020, it was such a huge shift in everything. Um, COVID-19 happened, the onset of Black Lives Matter protests um, following the death of George Floyd. A lot of things started to happen in, with the backdrop of our company and uh, of our country, which ultimately ended up serving our company in a beneficial way. I will say this does not happen to a lot of people. It's just that we we're working in the healthcare sector and then a global pandemic happened and the populations that were disproportionately um, impacted by it happened to be marginalized communities in our exact demographic. Mm. And where we had conversations a year ago where we would talk to potential investors and stakeholders, nobody cared about what we were doing. 
um, the, and within the conversations this year completely shifted because of, you know, data and statistics and what we were seeing on the news every day. It became so, relevant. Uh, it became relevant. So then, then it became everybody was interested in what we were building. So it just happened so fast. And I, and I will say we're in a unique position that this tip, typically doesn't happen with a lot of companies and with a lot of founders. But it put, put us in a position where we then started to ha- having to turn down everybody because, you know, we are doing what's best for our company mm-hmm. and not people who are just looking for a moment in time, right? Um, so it's such a politically us- correct way to say it. <laughs> Because <laughs> I know a lot of companies and maybe influencers have experienced that as well, where all of a sudden there's so much attention from people who may not have given them the time of day before now. But Absolutely. then again, that is part of the secret sauce of success is um, timing as well as all the the preparedness and the work that you've put into into that getting to that moment where things just seem to jump off. Absolutely. So that is really what happened. So we announced a partnership last month with Unilever. We had been working with Unilever since the beginning of the year. They, at the early onset, saw the value in what we were building. Um, and we wanted our partnerships to feel like that organic, that we were mission aligned. And it wasn't just to, to, to be a quick conversation um, so that companies are able to stay relevant right now. Um, Because again, whenever I talk to investors, whenever I talk to anybody, our biggest concern and who we are focused on is the needs of patients. Mm -hmm. Um, We, you know, and I hate to say it, but, you know, our biggest focus is not on payers uh, or insurance providers or hospital systems or physicians, we are ultimately trying to serve the needs of patients um, and and people that look like you and myself. Mm -hmm. Um, In my case, I was able to be my own self-advocate. I knew to keep searching until I I found the right person for me. Mm -hmm. Everybody is not in that position. And sometimes we make choices based off of what is put in front of us because that is what we are entrusting our lives you know, to healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they don't always get it right. And when we think about the history of our healthcare system, we know that to be a fact. Yep. So, you know, it really kind of put our company in a stronghold for 2020 and beyond because of, you know, what we're doing. So in learning about HUD, one of the phrases I keep seeing placed in quotation marks is, Um, culturally competent. And it seems to me like one of the initial hurdles to getting partners would be for them to acknowledge that disparity in healthcare exists. So have you gotten any pushback in using that term culturally competent? So, and I I do want to point that out because ethnicity is not equal or does not always translate to culturally competent. Where we started with the platform is matching providers of color to patients of color because data and studies show just one-to-one patients who are matched, Black patients who are matched with Black physicians instantly report improved patient care experiences and ultimately improved health outcomes. But it is very unrealistic as a company when we think about on the supply side that every patient will always be matched to physicians of color. Mm -hmm. So our larger strategy, because also, um, 
you know, Black and Latinx physicians only account for 13% of the physician demographic. Mm-hmm. It, we're focused on the 87%, right? The 87% is who more, more so have to deal with the population who we're going after. So what we've been doing is we're focused on cultural competency, curriculums, cultural sensitivity, trainings, um, and really understanding the racial divide and the racial disparities and, and, and what is existing between those patient care experiences that equals or equates to not receiving the same quality of health care to white counterparts. Um, you know, our second rate healthcare system is shortening our lives and, you know, working with the 87% so that we can move the industry forward. So that is our larger term strategy. And I, I'm glad you kind of asked that because um, cultural competency in general is such a buzzword this year yeah. um, that I'm sure we're all very tired of hearing it. But all cultural competency means is really understanding um, and seeking to understand the needs of that patient and giving them the care um, that they deserve, they need, and they deserve for what you know, and without dismissing their fears or their traumas. And it's really all about understanding. So, how can we move the industry forward so that they understand and they seek to understand the needs of their patients? Got it. And so given that you're now hitting your stride as a company, I'm sure you're pulled in a lot of different directions. What does an average day look like for you? And what kind of support system have you put in place in order to make sure you stay sane as a founder? (laughs) That's a great question um, because anybody who speaks to me or anybody who's on our team knows that on average, I'm in about 60 meetings a week. Um, they are very intensive days that I have a minimum about 10 meetings a day. You know, I'm meeting with other healthcare organizations. I'm meeting with different partners that we have. I'm pitching. Um, we are going through an institutional round. So we are raising venture capital dollars. So I'm having conversations with investors. I'm having conversations with stakeholders. Um, so yes, that's what my kind of day-to-day looks like. Nobody ever told me ahead of being a founder that I would, um, you know, you spend so much time. It, it is a full-time job in itself to raise venture dollars, right? So, you know, now we're at a place where we're generating revenue and I don't have to do everything myself. So we have a team um, in, in terms of our team members, we have a growth strategist. We have a researcher on our team um, who who focuses on UX and just kind of clinical research. Um, we have a social media manager. Obviously, we have our development team. So we're, we're we have people in place now. So that you know, in the beginning, it was really me doing everything myself, and now we're building traction. As you mentioned, we are generating revenue, and we're able to pay team members to support what we are building. How does a company like you generate revenue? I'm glad you asked that question. So we generate revenue through partners. So, you know, obviously Unilever is a customer slash partner of ours. Um, But in addition, we work with payers. So insurance providers, um, we've just started the conversation with different employers and health systems Mm -hmm. to help them develop their um, solutions to this problem. So we have a a few different pathways for revenue, but those are just a few of them. Great. So what is next for Hued and how can we support your growth? So, yeah, obviously, you know, our biggest thing is um, building out the technology and so that it is more 
customer centric and, and patient centric, mm -hmm. um, providing more health literacy, more resources, um, our cultural competency certification and curriculum that we've been building. So these are the, a few of the things that are kind of within our radar, but in terms of supporting and engaging, you know, absolutely visiting HUD. Our website is huedco.com. If you are searching for a provider, please register. If you are a provider and you are looking to be a part of our HUD network, obviously we vet physicians who want to join um, and you can register and submit your profile on the site as well. So on the patient and physician side, please visit HUD. You'll get all the information and um, resources that you need. And we, we just want to continue to engage with everybody. Great. Kimberly, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I'm excited to see what the future has in store for HUD. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're this welcome. Hi, Offscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. If you enjoy listening to our show, please pay it forward by sharing us with your network. Between episodes, you can find me on Instagram. Our handle is at She's Off Script, or you can catch up on past episodes at She's Off Script.com. See you on the next one.